Hey everyone, it is Nick here and welcome to another week on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. Now, if you've worked with me long enough, and I joke here because this is feedback that my team gives me all the time, you would know that I talk a lot about results versus tasks. The importance of people, the importance of culture, the importance of structure and process, all leading to high levels of precision and ultimately performance. Well, my guest today is the perfect person to riff back and forth with the topics of collaboration, strategy, and execution. So joining me on the show is Lee Benson, who has over 25 years of experience as a CEO. He has owned and led Able Aerospace, a company he grew from, get this, three employees to over 500 employees with 15 consecutive years of 20% compounded average annual growth rate. Whew, that's tricky to say. He then sold that business to Textron Aviation for nine figures. Not an easy thing to do. Lee then founded Execute to Win to help senior leadership teams experience similar results by working better together at improving their organization's most important number. And I'm going to repeat that because most important number is going to be one of the most interesting things that you learn from this episode today. There is one most important number that would do two things for the organization and every single team within the organization. One, it says above all other numbers, you're winning or losing the game. And almost more importantly, it drives the majority of the right behaviors. So if we get into what Lee does, we're going to focus specifically on his operating system. And he uses this operating system with businesses in all sectors all over the world. He invests a lot of time and energy in these companies to drive high levels of growth. And he uses what he calls mind methodology, helping teams uncover the most important number to achieve and identify the work that drives that number. And I think a great question to ask every single team member in your organization is, how do you create value for the organization? So we're gonna get into this today. We're gonna to talk about his book, which you can probably guess what it's called, Your Most Important Number, which is now a Wall Street bestseller. And most importantly, we're gonna talk about how the various elements that he's created over his career can be applied to your business. So there we have it. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Lee Benson. Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another week, another episode of Scale Up and another amazing guest and no doubt a fantastic conversation about all things growing, scaling and building a high value company. Today I am joined by Lee Benson. He has over 25 years experience as a CEO. He's actually had the, the privilege I'd say of having massive growth year on year in the businesses that he's run and he's taken that thinking and he has created a company called Execute to Win and has written a new book, which is called Your Most Important Number. And we're gonna go through all of that experience, all of that thinking today. So welcome to the show, Lee. Nick, great to be here, thank you. So my first question, we were joking before we press record, like uh, if, you, if you watch this on YouTube, you'll see that, I, I think it's probably Lee's house, but he's got this whole stage full of um, musical instruments and lights and all sorts of cool stuff. That's not what I expect to see when we're about to talk about business, but tell, tell me about your background. What's, what's going on here, Lee? Yeah, what, what's going on? I, I have a, a fairly large home recording studio slash office, 
And music has been a big part of my life since I was a kid. I started playing guitar so young, so young. I don't remember not knowing how to play. Wow. In the 1980s, I would play uh, some of those years over 300 nights out in clubs and concerts, you know, covers to make money, but also lots of original stuff. And and I, I still keep doing this. And I think there's a pretty powerful correlation between music and business and you know, the short version of it is you get the right band together, whether it's, you know, the Beatles, the Eagles, Led Zeppelin, change out one of those team members and see what happens to the emotional energy they create in the songs, right? Go to a business with a senior leadership team, change out one of those players and see what happens to the value they create from a material standpoint. So I, I see it about, you know, really harmony around how we're trying to create value as a group of individuals, whether it's material in a for-profit business or it's emotional value, which also can generate a lot of material uh, value um, in, in a band. And two observations. It's definitely not a small recording studio. It looks like we're in some sort of hallway somewhere. But secondly, I love the fact that we're starting this conversation talking about people and culture, talent, that sort of thing. We're not talking necessarily yet about what the title of your book is about, which is the numbers, right? Because my, I suppose, thinking coming into this is that we're going to, you know, obviously unpack kind of what you've done, what you've created. But why did you start first with people? Well, people's the most important part of the equation because they create all the value collectively within any organization for themselves, for their families, for their communities. Uh, but interestingly, um, even though that's by far most important, when I look at an organization, I think outcomes, structure, then people. And I think most organizations start with people um, and make the best of what they have. So if we decide these are the outcomes we want to achieve, what's the ideal structure to achieve it? And then what are the perfect roles within that structure? And structurally, you know, supply chain, sales, marketing, operations, et cetera, uh, clearly define the roles, the one to three at most outcome-based responsibilities for each role. Now we look at the people given the best chance of success, you know, setting in each one of those seats. So by far the most important, but the last thing I ever do is start with the people and then, and then, you know, make the best what we have. I really want to design it well. Does that make sense? It makes, makes perfect sense. One of the questions that comes up all the time when we talk about scaling, right, as a definition, and actually people get growth and scale confused sometimes, right, um, is that it's the ability to, to, create value in your company through people and process. Now, the question that comes from that is what comes first? Do you create the outcome, the process, the structure, then the people, or do you get great people together? And then because of you know their backgrounds, their capabilities, they then build the structure of the process. I think you've answered the question, but I wouldn't mind going a little bit deeper into that. Well, and initially there has to be, you know, one or a few folks that are getting the, the 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 starting outcomes that we want to achieve together and thinking about the structure. But as we scale, I think it's uh, really important to be super intentional about the people we're bringing on board to achieve certain outcomes uh, within the organization. So it, I guess it's a bit of a circular discussion when you think about it that way. Uh, but I, I think a better approach to make sure everybody's sitting in the right seat to create the most value for the organization is is to do the outcomes, people, uh, structure, um, exercise, but with outcomes first, structure second, and people people third, and how they how they fit in. And I, and I think a great question to ask every single team member in your organization and whoever's uh, you know watching this or listening to it is how do you create value for the organization? Yeah, and what what so, would they say? Well, you know, it's funny because we were, we were talking about this uh, off air um, around private equity, everyone knows my background that. 
And one of the things that we, I suppose, pride ourselves in private equity is the ability to compress time. So, so in private equity, you will acquire a business, you'll look to exit the entity that can be a group of businesses, the way we do it in three to five years for a, usually a three to four times return on invested capital. So three to 400% increase. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is the thing that we do at the center of everything isn't acquisitions. It isn't buying other businesses. That is obviously one of the tactical things we do to create that, that value. What we do is that we, we usually go through and look forensically at all the people and we look at the key roles and we look to exactly what you said. I'm just backing up the point of we look at what's the outcome we need to achieve in that compressed time frame, and do we have the right individual with the right experience across and through the business? So, so it's interesting that you're coming to it from, from an angle similar to that, but you've built a whole structure around that from, from what I believe as well. So. Yeah. If we can, let's get into this. So you have a methodology called MIND, and you know that talks obviously about the most important number and the drivers. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I can. Uh, there is one most important number that would do two things for the organization and every single team within the organization. One, it says above all other numbers, you're winning or losing the game. And um, almost more importantly, it drives the majority of the right behaviors. And so at the top of a for-profit company, it's typically what they call profit if they're getting yep. ready to exit. And it could be EBITDA because that'll be a multiple or if it's capital intensive, could be cash flow. But as you start going out, um, every other team will have a most important number that when improved will drive the majority of the right behaviors, but also improve the top number for the organization. And you can scale this all the way to the front lines of an organization of any size. The largest that we've worked with is about 40,000 employees. And we have some small ones that are about four employees. It, it works, you know, really anywhere. And, and so the MIND methodology, which is what this is, MIND stands for most important number and drivers. So once every team has their most important number, they come up with um, categories of work, essentially, that they should be good at leveraging to improve their number. And their goal in their most important number will be, here's where we're starting, here's where we're going, and we want to track that to see if we're on track at risk or behind all the way through. And hopefully we're, we're actually beating it. Um, so this is sort of evergreen work that teams do to continually improve their most important number. And then the question for a leader, how do you create value for the organization? They say very clearly, this is my team's most important number. This is why it drives the majority of the right behaviors. And here's the work we're doing to continually improve it and stay on our plan going forward. Now, every team will likely have projects, you can call them strategic initiatives, that once we complete those, it'll create a step change in that number. But the goal is to tie all these numbers together going to the top. So if, at the top of an organization, pretty easy for the most part. If it's a, if it's a, uh, you know, a nonprofit organization, it's the impact that they have in the world and how do you measure that? And most aren't very good at it, but we help them. We have a lot of nonprofit clients. In the for-profit world, the top number, relatively easy. Once you get down from there, it's a it's a pretty interesting discussion. I mean, just take HR, which is the one that typically they go the wrong direction. They'll they'll say in having this discussion with a team, what is our most important number that that says we're winning or losing and drives the right behaviors? And they go with retention or um, engagement. And I say, okay, well, let's play that out. If it's retention, you hire me to run HR. We we have a thousand employees or a hundred employees. 
And three years from now, we have a 95% retention rate, but 75% of the employees, uh, the team members, they can't achieve the outcomes that their role requires them to achieve. But I won on my most important number. So in that case, it didn't drive the majority of the right behaviors. And so a better, most important number for HR would be percentage of seats filled with capable people. Everybody's in a defined role. There's clear outcome-based responsibilities for each role. And everybody that's achieving those or exceeding that, that's that's somebody that's capable in a seat. Everybody below that, they're not capable. So really simple, drives all the right behaviors now getting in there. And, and, and finance is another one that's always fascinating to me. But I can go through one example after another. And it's, it's uh, interesting how you completely change how they think about creating value for the organization and actually create the value with one most important number that does those two things and a handful of other measures that they measure um, with each team to make better decisions to improve their most important number. And, and most of the measures, when I look at scoreboards going into work with teams, they might have 50 things they're measuring. And I ask the question for each one of them, how are you using this measure to make better decisions to improve your most important number? And we end up um, getting rid of over half of these other measures because they're just activities. I do like simplicity, <laughs> right? Because I, I see dashboards in the businesses that I go into and they're like you suggested, they're 50 to 100 things. And you kind of think it's it's granular, which, I, which you can see there are points in time where that can matter, right? Certainly some of the businesses I've been in, we were looking at information by the hour because they were there were big consequences to not do that. However, if it becomes overwhelming for people, then they don't know what to do, right? And then they don't do it. And then they, you know, that affects the culture. But I want to start off with probably the most simple question. And I'd imagine, imagine the question you could ask the most. Why just one number? Not three, not five. Why one? To be really clear on the North Star for every team, when somebody says, this is how I create value for the organization to point there, you know, okay. at the end of the day, whether it's shareholder value or, or cash flow or, or net profit, at the end of the day, you know, a CEO's role or a founder's role of an organization, if they're still leading it, um, is to continually increase the value of the organization. And so there's one measure that says you're doing it. And then people will say, well, but culture is important and all this other stuff, and it can't be just one. Well, there really is one foundationally that that is that measure of the value that a team is creating. And all the other stuff feeds into it. You get culture wrong, you're not going to create the most value for the organization. So all this other stuff goes in. And I, I look at profit, and I'll just kind of stay in the for-profit world, yep. um, is foundationally wildly important to be able to do all the other things to create value for our team members, for the communities we engage with, you know, really all stakeholders. And we want to continually increase or, you know, accelerate the rate that, that we're increasing that uh, level of cash flow or profit. So we can do these things even bigger and better, you know, out in the world. But the one number, as soon as you start adding others, they start coming up with more and more numbers. It gets more complex. And, and I can look at, you know, all the popular operating systems, whether it's OKRs or 40X or scaling up or EOS, there's so many of them out there and literally thousands that consultants have put together. And I think the majority of the operating methodologies within, within companies, like how they run and how, how they, they create value should be intentionally designed, but most are probably unintentional and it's homegrown because they, they just think they know. Um, and so it just gets wildly complicated. And one last thing to kind of add here is um, I, I'm not really sure um, how often you've audited goals, but it sounds like you've done a lot of that work, Nick, when you go into an organization. 
Um, but I look at the goals and I say, wow, you know, whether they've got 10 employees or 10,000, 95% of the goals are just not very thoughtful. And, and I don't believe traditional goal setting stands the test of the time. It, it feels, it looks good on paper, but it feels terrible for most employees, you know, come up with three goals on your own, get it approved by your manager every quarter, um, and then rinse and repeat every quarter, as opposed to I'm on this team, there's the number that says we're winning or losing the game. And here's all the ways that I contribute to make sure that we win. So I'll much simpler. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I've what I've found to be true, right? And it's been interesting to get your perspective on it. So a lot of entrepreneurs, when they go from startup into scale up, right? And there are different ways of defining that. There are institutional ways of defining that there are there are a number of um, employee ways of defining that but let's let's just assume it's as as a concept there is you are going to have more people around you right it's not two or three people in a shed creating something right and so those creative entrepreneurs struggle when things become more complex and the more complexity that that gets brought in usually by you know too many goals unclear goals um, unclear priorities and objectives, not, not enough metrics or too many metrics means that the business then stops, goes backwards, falls. Now, the reason I say that is when I used to go in to do turnarounds, that's what I inherited. Like, you know, we'd go in there, private equity, buy, buy assets cheap, simplify them, bring the right people in, scale them quickly and sell them. That's, that's, that's the mantra, but complexity was the killer was the absolute killer. How, how do you balance then? The simplicity of one number cascaded through, right? As you as you described before, without mm. without enough detail, enough granularity to use my favorite word today, um, mm. for the business to be able to make the right decisions with the right information to, to get the right insights. Sure. And the level of granularity and additional numbers is always appropriate. And so for some teams, it doesn't have to, to be super deep and it's clear on the value and they're, they're achieving that, um, um, you know, that they were in the way that it was designed for their team to create value for the organization and others, they may actually need 50 measures and we'll have all of that. And then the drivers, all these different categories of work and all the actions that are in, were, um, that are being captured in these drivers within the team meetings and, and holding everybody accountable to achieve them. So it can, it can go as deep and as granular as you want, but everything we do has to be through the lens of improving the most important number. So think about it this way, alignment, decisions, accountability. So are we aligned on all the things that we can do to improve what's most important? Okay, great, we've got the list. Are we making the best decisions to do the right work at the right time in the right order? And are we continually building our culture of accountability so everybody's doing what they said they would do? And, and so when you, when you think about it that way, um, it'll, it'll be as, as simple or as granular um, as it needs to be. But every decision, every action is about improving uh, what is most important. So let's jump back to your personal experience here. So I, I made mention at the introduction that you had a company that I believe you sold, you exited, and it had something like, is it 15 consecutive years of 20%? I assume it's, it's compound growth, right? Can, compound annual growth. Yes. Right. So on, we're not on average 15 years straight before exiting. Yeah. So let, let's, yeah. I just want to see where the foundation of, of your thinking and methodology came from. So let's, let's talk specifically about that business if we can. Um, and how you learned to do this. Did you bring that methodology in or was it a bit of a trial and error process as you started to have more success, et cetera, and then you started doubling down on it? 
I did not bring a methodology in. So I, I bought a company for its debt um, in the early 90s. And, and it was in total about 600000 in debt, had three employees, almost went out of business 15 times the first year, didn't take any pay. We only did 360000 in revenue. And when I sold it, we're in the $100 million range, um, wildly profitable and exited at a, a 21.6x uh, multiple of EBITDA. So fantastic, right? Um, but it, right right around, and there's a lot of struggles. And, and even though I could work 80 and sometimes 100 hours in a week, I always loved it. It never felt like work. Uh, but right around 150 employees, we just got stuck in this at this $8 million level for a couple of years. And I just went and looked at all the leaders, like, why are some leaders getting it done and other leaders not getting it done? And then I just categorized this stuff, like uh, foundational readiness, all the pieces in place to be able to actually, you know, achieve their their outcomes uh, from um, leadership, how they actually showed up, ability to um, create a plan, strategy, whatever you want to call it. But it took all these things and I called it the leadership audit checklist and and I um, ranked every leader in the organization, red, yellow, or green, in every single uh, category within within these groups, and and uh, put it up for everyone to see. And lo and behold, within a few months, all the leaders moved much more towards green. And those that those that were green when we started got great results. Those that weren't didn't. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? Yeah. But this leadership audit checklist, once that was done, we started taking off. And then I just kept refining it. Now, how do we connect culture to financial results? And and so, what what do I mean by that? Um, you know, what we agree to do, and 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 how we interact with each other. I think that's the simplest definition of it. Um, if I if I go foundational to that, um, the decisions, accountability, practices um, uh, from which an organization, and including beliefs, uh, create value. Um, I, I think that applies everywhere and you can audit any organization. But what I wanted to do is take our alignment tools like mission and vision and behaviors and leadership traits. We had a quality policy in this business we're talking about. How are every one of our 500 plus team members at the time I sold it, applying each of those to measurably improve the organization and take a shot at an ROI? So even frontline team members that collectively, you know, made or uh, broke the company in my view, how are they applying a behavior like having a personal commitment to the end result or being respectful, honest, and straightforward to improve customer experience, internal or external, um, and or profitability or cash flow. Every six months, everybody had an example of this, and it was incredible how much they collectively created value. So this, this is where it started, was experimenting with all this. And then my biggest lesson was um, there's a few people in the world, and Nick, I suspect you're actually one of those. You go into a, a business as a leader, you'll make anything work. Um, you can go into a complete disaster, come back six months later, and this looks like the most amazing business. That's a very small percentage of leaders. So what worked for me back then and what I was able to drive with my discipline did not work for dozens of my CEO peer advisory group friends that I was in a number of different groups when they wanted to do it after a couple of years, maybe two left standing. And they didn't say it didn't work. What they said was, we feel bad. We didn't have the discipline to drive it like you do. And so then I set out on this journey. How do I come up with something that works for 80% of all teams anywhere, any type of organization, especially when a star isn't in the room. And that's where we've evolved into what we call the mind methodology. And we put this in hundreds of organizations. 
It literally works everywhere unless you have a leader that isn't comfortable being transparent around the most important number. Because the okay. most important number in driver's methodology won't work if you can't talk about the most. Well, I was going to ask about what was it? I mean, you must have had some self-reflection about you as well, because I'm hearing the word discipline. I'm hearing transparency. Um, though those things are pretty important, particularly sort of candor, right? Being able to call things out and 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 that piece that you mentioned around the leadership, that's, that's a high level of transparency when you're calling out performance at that level. What was it about you specifically that, that, that made you successful outside of the methodology? Well, I, I started on what I'm calling the value creation stressing journey really early. Uh, so my my family environment, um, dangerous and toxic, not just dysfunctional, which is probably mm -hmm. most family environments. But by the time I'm a you know very young kid, I'm I'm uh, you know pulling weeds for a quarter an hour in the late 60s. I'm mowing lawns, I'm shoveling snow, I'm delivering papers, and I'm working in a restaurant as a busboy, a cook. And by the time I was kicked out of the house, the beginning of my senior year in high school, it was a non-event for me to be able to afford an, an apartment. I already bought my own vehicle, um, and and it was one of the best things that that ever happened to me. But what I, what I mean by this value creation stressing journey is, wow, I'm making a quarter an hour now. I can shovel snow, and I can make four times the amount of money in an hour. Then I can do this. And I, I, I got to a place where I really trusted the work about trading my best efforts for the accumulated best efforts of neighbors, you know, which is money. That's all. It's how I think about money. It's just accumulated best efforts sitting there in the yes. bank. Look, look at the value I created. And, and so I trust doing that work. So all the way through the business, I'm doing this work. I know I will come out the other side. I am struggling at times. Absolutely. But I trust that these struggles will yield more value created at the end of it. And I kind of learned to love that process. And so that that's what got me through all of this. And I'm on my seventh business that I've started from scratch. I'm invested in a number of companies and the, the business I have today, we do have sort of a completely captive private equity piece of what we do when we have clients that, um, it, you know, the right people, the right business model, the, the right product market fit, all, all of that, um, we'll choose to invest. And, and so that that's a lot of fun. But I just keep doing this, you know, going going down this road, <laughs> and I I love the work. I mean, I just absolutely love this this concept of creating more and more value in the world. And even when I talk to kids, and I'm heavily engaged in K twelve education in Arizona to make a big difference there. The purpose of an education is to create value in the world. And there's three buckets: there's material, there's emotional, and there's spiritual. And emotional, positive emotional energy to me is the the scarcest commodity on the planet. Um, I'd rather live only 25 years on 10 than 100 years on two or one. And, and so the purpose of, edu of an education is to create value in the world. And I do want the primary identity that all kids have to come from the value they create, not TikTok likes and other things that can take them down, you know, pretty dark, reactive roads. So there's two things, two things that come from that. So thanks for sharing that as well. But, you know, what I took... It's obviously the simplicity thing is is critical here, and that's what's allowed you to to scale what you created, or certainly to be able to um, take it and then and then turn it into a methodology that people can apply. But the other thing that's really interesting, what you said then, is directed action. Like you know, you said it a couple of different ways, which which was really interesting for me. Which is, it wasn't so much about the outcome; it was what you did day in day out from a very early age, which you can continue to do, which accumulated, compounded over time to create the result. Well, th think about it this way. Um, I'm noticing more and more parents and and even listening um, 
uh, you know, culturally in, in the United States, talk about how they want to take all the struggles away from their kids. And I think that's mm. what's hindering them as we launch them into adulthood. They're not ready to be an adult. They're now ready to go into what, what we'll call the emerging adult phase from 18 to 36 or whoever knows what it's going to be because we took it away. And now we're talking about it with team members within organizations. We need to make it easier and easier, give them more and more for doing less and less. And it's like, wait a minute, um, you know, the the there are, there are healthy struggles that people need to go through to be able to create more value, and they feel better about themselves. So every one of the team members that that um, that I've worked with in my businesses and those that are uh, have deployed the mind methodology, when they're really winning and creating more and more value over time, that's when their self esteem rises. I mean, this is a gigantic part of culture. They all end up starting to act like the CEO of their own role. They know the numbers. They know how they create value. That permeates out into their families, communities. You know, selfishly for me, it it makes a way better world to interact with out there. But it's I, I can't stress enough. It's the importance of trusting the work, valuing the struggle, uh, going through that. Does that resonate, Nick? It does. It does. Well, as as you're talking, I'm thinking we used to just simply call that a performance culture in some of the businesses we were in. But how you created that culture was interesting. So, so I'll share a very quick story because I think it kind of um, fits with what you're saying. So I worked at a business for a number of years called Getty Images. Now, if you if you study that company, it was one of the sort of poster childs for sort of scaling and exiting there were five separate exits to private equity to the to the public markets back to private equity and what we created there was something quite interesting it was a culture so defined like incredibly defined based on leadership principles and we hired we fired we rewarded based on those principles and what was fascinating to me i was a vp in that business at the time running quite a large business unit but uh, all the strategic decisions sat at the top table at the exec table if you like and then everyone who was hired in that organization was operationally precise, like to the level you've never seen. And then we were, it was kind of a little bit military or militant, but we were performance managed based on our ability to do what we said we would do based on, you know, what our role was or what our, our goals were within, the, within that part and how we did it. And we were assessed 40% of our bonus every year came against an assessment against those seven leadership principles. Hmm. So it was really structured and people who were there who fit that culture it took 10 interviews to get a job there, right? It was that sort of thing. Cause the first one was, can you do the job? The second one, are, are you going to fit? Right. Um, people stayed there forever. Right. But a lot of people left, you know, the ones who, who couldn't quite get in, but we were very clinical about it. And I'm just curious because, you know, with what you were discussing there a little bit, the intentionality of culture here feels like it's a big part of your methodology. And a big part of probably what you help business owners with now. Do you do you help define that for them? Do you have a, a playbook around that? Or do you give them some principles and let them find their own way? Because some of the things you said, and I'll finish with this, are quite, quite clear signposts of what needs to be in place to be able to, to, to drive the level of success you've achieved and what you've seen since. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a core mind methodology um, subset. So when we start with, with any organization, we don't even sign them up for pay until we go through a two hour experience doing their work with our methodology. Then we come out the other side. Does mm. this make sense? Yes or no. Uh, and the, because there's, there's so many methodologies out there that everybody says, once you do this, you'll have more money and unicorns will be flying around <laughs> and all this. Stuff. So why would you believe it? So no, let's do a two hour experience. We go through it. 
And then we we get really clear on what winning looks like over the next year, what it would look like the following year, what your most important number is, uh, a couple of key measures to make decisions to improve it, a set of drivers, how they meet. That's the foundation of it. Now let's start adding other things into that make sense. So our approach to leadership development, performance management, setting strategy, designing and implementing an intentional culture where you can really connect culture to financial results um, and compensation and a couple other things. So this is all wrapped up into the mind methodology and you can get a lot of it in, in uh, my book uh, to go through it, your most important number. And if you want even more information, go to the and, and you can get um, access to a lot of free material or leadership library, everything in there. But it's, it's not just a number, it's a holistic operating system and the most important elements. And, and one of them that's missed by most organizations is compensation. You know, what, what, you, what, what you pay for, how you incentivize really does drive a lot of behaviors. And some leaders think, oh, it's just the right thing to do. Everybody will do it. Well, I think, I think all the pieces are important. Should be the right thing to do. They should get incentivized for the value they create. They should understand why they make what they make relative to everybody else in the organization. So kind of a long answer to there's a number of pieces here, but it's really simple when you just look at these basic blocks and go, okay, well, where did we start? What's the ROI or return on investment for uh, getting culture right, for getting leadership development right, uh, performance management right, which we call performance snapshots. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's it's it's holistic. It's all in there. Because you mentioned some of these other, let's call them systems, so operating systems. Um, and I've had a couple of the guys who've created those systems on the show before. So one in particular, Gino Wickman, who created and sold EOS, his his famous book, Traction, was um, something that was used in my private equity days. How does your system differ from something like EOS, which is which is used a lot by lots of different businesses? Yeah, and I know Gino, great guy. Uh, but what's different with ours is that we never make process what's most important. And, and every decision, every action in our methodology is geared towards improving what's most important. And even solopreneurs that have read the book just change the language and how they talk to their, you know, their vendors, their partners, their, their mentors, and very quickly their, their results start to change significantly in, in the right direction. So that that's the biggest thing. And, and when, once you take a star out of the room, um, and I would say a star leader, uh, they can make anything work. They know what direction to turn the wrench or throw down, get a new wrench because they, they're always looking at the result that they want to get. But once they're out of the room and you give them OKRs or EOS or scaling up and here's the things, it becomes, oh, did we meet for you know 15 minutes and eight seconds here? And did we parking lot stuff over there? And did we all create the right number of goals, whatever we call them, wigs or rocks or you know whatever it happens to be? Um, and if a star isn't overseeing this with every team, it becomes process over what's most important. And I, I commonly hear, okay. I commonly hear leaders say everybody's hitting their goals and the company isn't going anywhere, but boy, are they following the process, whatever that yeah. is. So you get stuck in the complexity of the process, right? Even if the process looks simple, because you know what, I, I'll say something controversial here. I think sometimes that's a form of procrastination. Do you know what I mean? You, you, if you focus on task and not outcome too much, it can become this thing that you're, what, what's, what's the term? A busy fool, right? Yeah. Yeah. Don't confuse efforts with the results and all that. Um, and something else going on, 
culturally, um, you don't want to be seen as somebody that failed in most organizations. You, you hit your goals or you don't. So the sandbagging starts to happen around the goals. And, you know, I kind of come back to, uh, you know, your question, why just one number and simplicity wins, in my opinion, and design every team to create the most value that, that it can create and do the basics really well. I mean, you know, you can call it do less better. But how many organizations have you seen where they get excited about a thing? It could be a new operating methodology, OKRs. They won't do it very well. And then they'll say it didn't work. And then they jump to EOS and they jump to 40X or something <laughs> else. So let's get excited about the next thing that we won't really do well and then jump to the next and the next. If you just did the foundational three or four things within each team incredibly well, what would be difference in the value that an organization of any size or type creates? And, and that's where I keep coming back to because I, I work with a lot of teams, a lot of organizations. I, we have lots of consultants that are doing this work. And that seems to be the biggest opportunity. Do the foundational stuff really well before you jump to the next thing. Now, why do they keep jumping to the next thing? They they don't want to they don't want to do that work. It's kind of hard to really refine you know some of these basic things. It depends and, also uh, on the stage of the business, right? So there, you know, I mentioned beforehand about the creative entrepreneur who struggles to scale because you're going from from a very different environment, right? You know, there's chaos and there's fun when you're creating. Sometimes that's where people feel their most energy, but then they have to be the, well, the same person that has to scale, which is about process and systems and people and, and all those sort of things. That's why you see a lot of those great startup CEOs move aside for the scale-up CEO to come in, right? Because it's a different well, thing. I, but, well, one, one, one thing to add there, um, I believe if, if, the, if you're thinking in your lens about every decision and action is how do we create the most value possible for this organization, and increase that over time, um, you start to developing, you start to develop really every leader to get better and better at scaling. Doesn't happen in a minute, might not happen in a year, but they all get better at it in my experience and how they think about this stuff. So I don't believe in business absolutes. Like if you're a great startup person, you can never be a great scaling person. You can have it all if you want to put the time and energy into it, in my opinion. Uh, but the biggest developmental tool from my experience is this concept of in continually increasing the value that you lead your team to create. And then they're, they're all better at that. It doesn't matter the stage may still may not be the right person. You're right. But I, my thinking, it took me right through it all the way through scaling. Yeah, you're a unique person, Lee. The number, the number one thing that private equity do, and again, I remember I'm coming from that lens, not necessarily the more holistic business lens is to, is to shake out the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> we do it. I'm not saying it's always right. It's sometimes very risky as well. But if you look at, um, if you look at kind of uh, the metrics and performance of that, that one thing they do, it's always that. And it's not, it's not because someone like you or someone who has become more of that creative entrepreneur can't become the, the person who needs to be the right identity and capability to take the business forward. It just comes back to that time compression thing I mentioned before. Yeah, you, you don't have the time in the environment that you're talking about. No. You get there. It's like, I, I know I can get this person there, but it's going to be three years. No, we, ha we have six months. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's like that. That's why that environment is, is a polarized view a little bit versus kind of, you know, the majority of people listening to this. But I do know a lot of people listening to this show have the ambition to want to, you know, potentially exit their company to private equity one day. That's, that's a goal that a lot of people share with me. Not always private equity, but that's, 
one of the one of the bigger options for them. And I think understanding how that works and, and the level of precision that you need to do that is important. The one thing I like about about what you've created here, Lee, and I'm going to use that word again, is precision, right? So when we look at um, value in, in, in my world, we look at what it's called transfer value. So you can have value, which can be defined by a number, let's call it EBITDA or profit, net profit for this conversation, but a very high profit business that doesn't have the right machine built around it is not transferable, right? So, so the, the point being is that you have to be able to build the machine, which is both the finances, but actually the, the way it operates to be able to create that value. Yeah, I, I agree. We, we all should be thinking about building a value creation machine, lots of parts. Uh, any point in time, one part will be holding back the machine more than all the others, and it's a moving target. I call it the organizational structure bottleneck game. What I don't think we want to do is build this cool statue that we love and keep telling the world how cool it is, even though our competitors are, are you know kicking our butts. Um, we're, we're building a value creation machine. I like the way you say that. Yeah. Let's let's um, finish off the conversation with getting a bit more practical. We have touched on the key elements um, of the mind methodology and we've touched on the book, et cetera, et cetera. But if someone's listening to this now, well, the first question actually, before we get into that is, is there a size of organization or a stage that your method works best in? Or can it, it doesn't, I know you mentioned that some of the companies have got 40,000, some have got less, but is there a specific sweet spot? Um, in terms of size or type, no. In terms of perspective of the uh, the senior leader or senior leadership team, whether it's a solopreneur all the way up to tens of thousands of employees, the perspective is what really matters. Um, and, it, and it's usually we know we can create more value than we do. And for the last several years, we're doing fine, sometimes actually really, but we just know there's more Um there has to be a better way. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's the right perspective. And they're okay being transparent. They're okay growing. They understand the value of, of investing in, in leaders and, and, and developing, you know, all team members. Uh, th that, that's the right perspective. And almost everybody would say, well, yeah, leadership is everything. People are everything. We, you know, they're our most valuable resource. And then you, then they say, well, um, you know, we want to buy this million dollar piece of equipment, but they won't spend a dollar developing their leader. So what do their actions really say about that? And, and so the perspective is what's most important here, and it can be for profit or nonprofit, any size. Okay. So let's, let's, let's play with this for a second, a scenario, a bit of fun. So yeah. I have, I have a business and it's doing, let's say 15 million, um, $15 million revenue right now. It's growing okay. It's not growing exactly how I'd want. It's growing around 10%, 15% each year. I think it can do more and I certainly want it to do more. Okay. Um, my goal is to exit that business in the next 36 months, ideally, but certainly within the next three to five years. So I want to build as much value as possible. What you come in and we have a meeting, <laughs> right? What's, where do you start? What's the first thing that you would say to me if I, if I painted that picture to you? Yeah, the, the, so the first thing would be preferably this two-hour experience that I described. So I would have you and five, six, seven of your senior uh, team members in there. Okay, we know we can do more. We never quite hit it. There's reasons for that. But let's just start with what would aspirationally winning look like at the end of the next year? And we list all that stuff out. And there's rarely agreement on it. You know, like they're kind of, they usually surprise each other a bit. Okay, great. So we're there. Now we we built this foundation to go even further. We strengthened our foundation. What would winning look like 12 months later? 
and then you get all of that. So you have the delta between where we are now and where we want to go to without necessarily yet going into, you know, what sits in between that, right? Is that right? So we have North Star and we have current current position. Yeah, and there's a number of things. So it's positioning in the market, it's 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 EBITDA, it's it's sales, it it could be a number of things. And we look at that one year out and then two years out. And then what do we have to get done in the next couple of quarters to set us up to win next year and in the following year? So we have that discussion. Then we talk about the most important number. And then we list drivers, these, and if it's the top of an organization, it could be culture, strategy, team member development, you know, et cetera, things that holistically affect the entire organization of, of any size. And then it becomes more, uh, more focused as you go down, but that's where we start. So let, let's see what winning looks like. What do we have to get done to make that happen? What are the categories of work? And it, it's always fascinating when they, they list a category, it could be culture or it could be operating system. Like how, how are we intentionally designed as a machine to create value? And then I ask the question on a scale from one to 10, uh, how well are you leveraging your operating methodology today to create the most value possible to get us to where we want to go. And they'll often say, man, it's only a two or a three. So we go through these drivers, they rank them. And then we'll, as a group, come up with what would a 10 state look like, you know, for an operating methodology or culture in, in terms of leveraging those drivers to improve our most important number. We describe a 10 state based on where they're at at that time. Can't think of anything better. Great. Now, what are a couple of actions we could take to march in the direction of leveraging this closer to a 10 state? And then we just start down that road. That's sort of the evergreen process. And there will also be a list of, we need to accomplish these things. And I call them strategic initiatives, which are things we're starting today or doing today to get a step change, better result in the future. Could be acquisitions, could be you know all, all kinds of things. What's the ROI for doing it? And so we, we've got our evergreen work in the drivers. We have strategic initiatives. We've racked and stacked them by whatever parameters you want to, criteria you want to use. And, and that's, that's where we start. And usually within two hours, we have all of that for a team. It's, it's quite, quite impressive, um, you know, early when we were doing this, how quickly we could get there. Now it's just the way we breathe when we work with a team. <laughs> it's very similar, sim very similar to the playbook in private equity, which is, which is, have, have you had, when you sold your company, did you sell it to private equity, Lee, or was it? No, it's, yeah, tons. Of, yeah, it had to be strategic. Uh, in fact, I would advise everybody to go strategic and position for strategic because in aerospace, an 8x um, EBITDA multiple would have been winning when I sold mine. We got 21.6. Yeah, I was going to say, that's incredible. That's a good number in the best of best of times. <laughs> well, the best of times, but the company that bought us, um, you know, they they were really fantastic through the entire process. Um, within a couple of years, just executing on the other six elements of the strategy and, you know, including buying us, um, it would have been within two or three years, like they paid 4X because of how they could leverage their channels. Well, I mean, you, you know, all of this, but I just think it's so important to position for that anywhere you can and start thinking about it early. Where well, the more you that. understand that it's in, if, if an exit's something that you have on your horizon, which I advise most business owners to, you know, they're going to, they're going to exit at some point, right? You know, it's either going to be on their terms or it's not right. Um, yeah. And that could be retirement. It could be death, it could be all those things. But I think what's interesting about the way you've unpacked the, the mind methodology is the level of precision and thinking that's, I mean, to, to get a seat at the table as an operating partner in private equity, you have to operate like that. The terminology is a bit different. Um, the way that things are expressed uh, is is different as well. 
but the level of focus, precision, accountability, transparency is the same. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost a military level of discipline that goes into it. And as a result of that, you get a stunning result, right? More often than not when you, when you focus like that. So I think it's really interesting that you've taken those elements from not necessarily coming from that background, because you could argue that they're just great core business things that people should be able to do. But mm. most business owners don't. You know, they, they don't know it. It's an awareness or it's a confidence. You see what I mean? They they don't see the value in doing it. And mm. our approach to doing it. So I've, I've got a lot of friends that have sold to PE firms and you just watch everything because that compressed time time frame you're talking about just blow up and people going everywhere. And it, and it, it can kind of wreck the culture in a lot of oh, ways. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <do> yes. <laughs> um, with what we're doing, it feels amazing. Like yeah. it feels amazing for the team members going through it. So it's it's all the discipline and focus that you're talking about. But in a way, when you think about human nature and, and how they like to participate within a team and, and feel good about winning, um, you have that whole part of it as well. Unless somebody just wants to retire on active duty and be one of those road warriors that, that we we talk about, it will expose that. And it can expose the senior leader sometimes more than all the others because they have to open up in, in ways that they probably didn't before. But wow. it's is it in their best interest to, to well, do it? Well, best to know that now, though, isn't it? You know, sometimes the number of times I've seen founders or CEOs step aside to be chair chairperson, right, because they're not the best person necessarily. So I think, you know, best to know that earlier than later, for sure. Absolutely. Well, Lee, it has been excellent. So your book uh, is out now. Uh, your most important number, increase collaboration, achieve your strategy strategy, and execute to win. Um, my personal view is I think it's great to have different types of systems out there that are going to resonate with different people, right? Absolutely. And I think the level of precision that you spoke about today um, is definitely something that if you have the um, the goal of exiting your company, I think this is definitely one to have a look at to be able to apply that rigor and discipline to your business. So just want to say, Lee, thank you for gracing your presence here on the Scale Up stage today. It's been a delight and uh, I want to wish you all the best with the book and uh, and the big mission you have around helping business owners with this stuff. So thank you. Yeah, and 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 thank you. And and the audio book, I actually record 25-minute interviews after every chapter for more background and insights. And I actually put a guitar solo at the very end of the book. That's how I know people actually listen to the whole thing. Uh, but it, it, I recommend that just for even more information. I would, if we had more time, I'd get you to do it now. You see, that's the thing. That, 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 that could be the finish of the show. Well, next time, let's do it. <laughs> Thanks very much, Lee. All right. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.